In the Battle of the Bulge, uh, that would be World War II, not a diet that we're talking about there, but uh, in, 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 that in that battle, um, there was a very famous moment. I've, I've mentioned it before in a sermon. You, you had uh, the 101st Airborne being pinned down at Bastogne, and you have the, the German army that has rushed in and gotten around them in a way that, that it looks like they're going to be annihilated. That's what the Germans threatened to do if they didn't surrender. And they sent that message to, uh, to Anthony McAuliffe. And uh, he had a very famous, if you saw Band of Brothers, this is depicted, but he had a very famous response. He sends back a letter. Uh, it's like, to the German commander, nuts, exclamation point, the American commander. That, that was his whole response. And that was gutsy. And we love that, don't we? We love it when people are surrounded by an enemy and they just don't care. They're just like, mm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stand and I'm not going to let that overwhelm me. And David was very much that kind of guy. Go, you, you take the story of Goliath, which I'm not going to rehearse again, but you know, I mean, he comes out there, nobody else is doing a thing. They're letting Goliath come out there and just mock them and ridicule them. And worse than that, they, they're allowing Goliath to ridicule their God. And David's like, no, nope, we're not going to have that. That's not going to happen on my watch. You know, he's just this little pipsqueak compared to all these other guys. But, but he's willing to go out and face the giants. In Psalm 4, time has passed. He's no longer the, the, the young shepherd boy. David is probably actually reacting to the events surrounding Absalom's rebellion. Chapter 3 says that specifically the two Psalms have, and I'm not going to go into the background or why. I mean, that's like some treatise that you'd hear at seminary as to why these, but they appear to be related, relating something of the same time period. So we're going to treat this at least with the idea that this is probably Absalom's rebellion that is in the background here. And once again, David is facing overwhelming odds against him. How do you stand up against those kinds of things? Have you ever experienced re rejection? Anyone? In, anyone? I'm just looking for one person that's ever experienced rejection. Uh, okay, yes, I see that hand. Yeah, we all have, haven't we? Have you ever felt beset by enemies and maybe even enemies that you thought were your friends? The people we're looking at, the people that have turned on David were people that were in his close you know, association and, and, and leaders within the community, and they turned on him. And the question is, how do we withstand that? And this is the big idea. We can withstand men if we understand our God. We can, un we can withstand men if we can understand our God. And by understand our God, I mean come to that, that intimate sort of way of knowing a person, coming to know their character. You, have you ever thought a person was one thing, but then you got to know them, and you got to know their character, and there was something else? And you're like, well, I knew them, but now I know them. That's, that's the kind of knowing we're talking about, that you really come to understand who God is. Psalm 4, verse 1, we just read it, but I'm going to read that again for refreshing of memory. Uh, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have given me relief was when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayers. Uh, I, I'm not going to apologize for this, but the bulk of this sermon is just on, on verse 1. We'll cover the whole thing, but verse 1 is the one that really is, is, uh, is full of a lot of really important things that we need to see. We're in book 1 of Psalm 1. Remember that? How many chapters does that one have? 
I thought you'd all memorize that. Remember, we were going to memorize that. Don't you remember saying we were going to memorize it? 41, 31, 17, 17, 44. Yeah, high school locker combination has 41. I don't know why you should remember this. I just think it's kind of helpful. 41. And it's all about uh, the opposite. Well, not all about, but the general theme of the first book is that opposition to David. And uh, even though that sort of historically was in the beginning before he became king when he was being persecuted by Saul, that theme here is sort of being read back into it from a later story of Absalom. Got it? Did I go into too much detail there? I probably did. Anyway, okay, so the first way that we need to know God is that God is our righteousness. God is our righteousness. Here he says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Now, what would you mean if you called God your righteousness? Kyle and Dalich, good German commentators on this particular book, say that, that what David means there is that any righteousness that David has is alone from God, from God alone. And any righteousness that he aspires to is from God alone. And I think that's true. I'm not, I'm not going to disagree with the great Kyle and Dalich because I'm not a Hebrew scholar and, and they were. Um, but I think in context, the problem goes even further for, for David in terms of the challenge of his righteousness. Men are questioning whether David is righteous. So I think it's speaking of vindication here a little bit. Like when he says, God is my righteousness, I think he's saying, I can't give an account for my righteousness, but God will vindicate me. See, these these people, they've they've fallen in love with Absalom. You know, Absalom was this very, very attractive, charismatic young man. Beautiful set of hair. He looked like somebody on the front of one of those romance novels, you know. He had that kind of a look. I know that because the Bible describes him, um, not quite with those words. But in, in essence, a nice head of hair, good-looking guy. He was good with words. And it said that he would sit in front of the city gate, and people would come up to Jerusalem. And the idea was they were going there to get justice, some kind of a court case or whatever to be heard by the king. And he would sit there, and he'd greet them, and he'd kiss them, and he'd say, Hey, you know, if I were king... <laughs> I would get this thing straight. Now, I would give you justice. Kind of implication, David's, David's fallen down on the job. He's not getting the job done. And David was not a perfect man. Did you know that? How many knew that David was not a perfect man? <laughs> Some people really struggle with David because of how imperfect David actually was. And to be truthful, David had kind of missed it on a couple points where you might say, you're not really being just and fair, David. Think about The whole problem where it started with Absalom. Do you remember where it started? One of David's sons, a man by the name of Amnon, unfortunately got very interested in his half-sister Tamar and forced himself upon her. Well, that was Absalom's sister. And David didn't do anything about it. Absalom did. He ended up killing Amnon. And then, and then now, now David's got a murderer in his family, and he won't do anything about that either. So David, yeah, David was falling down on the job, and, and Absalom was able to exploit that. And we can get things wrong. We, you know, we are capable of, uh, as Christians of getting things wrong, but when people are saying evil against us, we should not despair because we have a righteousness which is from the Lord. If we try to vindicate ourselves, how many have ever tried to do that? Like prove that you were the 100% the right person in the situation. You did everything right, the other person did everything wrong. Right? Is it only me? 
And sometimes we are, we're, we, we are oppressed, and probably wrongly, we get, we get people that are trying to tear us down, take us apart. Uh, pastors are just prime game for this kind of thing. It happens all the time, and uh, pastors can become paranoid if they're not careful because they can sometimes feel like there's just this groundswell, you know, like Absalom's out at the gate saying bad things about you. And um, the, David doesn't say, God, you know, um, take care of me because I'm doing everything right. Vindicate me because I'm doing everything right. He says, he says, you're my righteousness. You're my righteousness. I've probably made a few mistakes along the way, but ultimately, Lord, I'm not looking to vindicate myself in, in my actions. I'm, I'm looking to you. You are that righteousness. You're my righteousness. You're my justification. And I tell you what, if you're going to deal with enemies in your life, wherever they may be from, they could be from the pit of hell. We could be talking about, you know, principalities and powers and, 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 and all of those kinds of things, or it could just be real live, honest to goodness people or temptations, whatever the case may be. If you, if you try to hold up against that based on how good you are, and that's your, that's your go-to, well, I know I've done everything right. <laughs> You're not going to stand. You're not going to be able to withstand. But if you, if you see the Lord for who he is, he's your righteousness. All right. Second, the Lord God hears us when we pray. David's really hung up on this hear me when I pray thing. Do you notice how many times he says it? It's like three times. And this is a short psalm. I'm picking short ones so I can get through them um, as I preach through them. Um, but um, yeah, twice in the first verse. Answer me when I call. Hear my prayer. Does David think the Lord's not hearing him? Why does he have to repeat himself? Now, if you're smart, you're going, well, it's that Hebrew parallelism thing you're talking about, I think, because he's rhyming the one idea with the other, and he's just repeating it for poetry's sake. Right, yes. And the other way we know that that he's not really worried about God hearing him is in verse 3 when he's speaking to his enemies, and he says, the Lord hears when I call. What we ought to see here is David's instinct. What is David's instinct when he's surrounded? When you're in trouble, what is your first instinct? Take care of it, right? Get her done. Get out there and make it happen. Do whatever you have to do, right? You get engaged. Like, how am I going to fight this? How am I going to deal with this? Who am I going to get on the phone with? Or who am I going to text? I guess it'd be texting probably more. But like, you're, you're going to get engaged. But David's instinct, this man of God and, and a warrior, his instinct is to get to his knees and to cry out to God. And that's supposed to be ours. If we know this God that we say we serve, if we want to be strong in the face of adversity, that should be who we are. And none of us are probably as much that way as we need to be. That our, that our first instinct is always, almost always to do it on our own and not go to him. And Jesus you know, tells us that, that, that we have not because we ask not. We, we are to seek and to knock and to ask. The writer of Hebrews says that whoever comes to God must believe that God exists and that what? He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So our whole notion of our God is to be this picture just as we're taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we, and we, and we pour out our need. Give me this day my daily bread. I, I, need, I need what, what you alone can, can give to me. Do you know that God hears you when you pray? Do you know it? 
There's knowing it and there's knowing it. I'll never forget in my first church, um, I was preaching and uh, wouldn't have the first foggiest notion of what I was preaching that day. Um, sadly, yeah, it's, it's all gone. Um, but I was up preaching and I hadn't gotten very far into my sermon and all at once there was this voice that came over the, the speakers. I can hear you keep talking. And that's what we all did. We're like, and I'm looking around for some joker in the congregation that's got like a lapel mic. I can hear you keep talking, or something like that. And there's no one there. And uh, so I kept talking. I and I and I finished out. I don't know what I said or how I got past that uh, oddity. We we later found out it was uh, a next door neighbor, a fireman at the fire station who had too much time on his hand, as firemen are sometimes apt to. You know, I don't think I have any of our firemen here today because that, you know, that would have landed great. But um, yeah, he had a CB station, you know, a big overpowered one, and it had bled into through our, through our sound system. But it was still pretty cool <laughs> to be up there preaching and have this voice from above come in. I can hear you keep talking. God doesn't usually answer us in that fashion. God doesn't usually make his presence known in that kind of fashion or way. But isn't it interesting, as you walk with the Lord, as this instinct, as you know him better, as this instinct becomes more part of, of just who you are and, and how you understand him, then you will, you will find yourself going quicker to prayer. And then you will find that he answers your prayers, that he, that he meets you in your place of need, which means the next time, there you are again, you're coming to him again, because this is how you have come to know him. So I ask it again, Christian, do you think God hears you when you pray? Yes. Yeah, okay, good. That's the, yes, he does. You could ask a kindergartner in, in uh, you know, junior church that question. Do you think God hears Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've known this our whole life. Yeah, God hears. But do we know it? Because we can know it, but do we know him? And, it, and it's in the knowing of him in that way. It's the way David knew God to be that, that, that one who listens, that one who hears, that strengthens David. We're not going to withstand enemies if we don't have that understanding of who God is. Thirdly, the Lord relieved, relieved us, past tense, relieved us from distress. So to deal with his current predicament that he's in, David is rehearsing that which God has already done in the past, which is that he relieved him when he was in distress. The language here is really interesting about relieved and distressed. I mean, it means that. And there's no question it means that. But what's interesting is the underlying Hebrew there, what it means in its most literal sense. Like literally, it would be translated something like, that I was in a narrow place, you know, hemmed in, narrow, and you opened up a wide opening. That's the, that's the, the picture of, of the underlying um, Hebrew. It's that idea that, 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 I, you know, that I was surrounded and God made a break in an opening where, where there was a broad way. Yeah? How many like to be in really tight, confined places? No? No, okay, yeah, I hate that. I hate. I think I'm a little claustrophobic. Uh, back when I was scuba diving, but years ago, people would always say, "Doesn't that make you claustrophobic?" And I'm like, no, "I wouldn't be doing it if it did, because I don't. I don't like that. Like if I watch spelunking on TV, 
You ever see those where they're down underneath the ground and they're back in some cave with just one little light and a backup and they're, they're like, and now we're going to go through this eight-inch opening. And I'm like, okay, I'm switching channels. I can't watch that. I can't watch that, that idea of being, uh, of being so hemmed in. And David had been in tight places. We even use that phrase, don't we? Man, I was in a really tight place there. That was a really tight spot that I was in. Um, I was in uh, dire straits, in dire straits. I was in, in that kind of a place. David was a warrior, and David had known what it was like to be in that kind of place. What usually happens if you watch the old cowboy movies? What happens, you cowboy movie fans, when you are uh, in a narrow, confined, like, canyon? What always happens? Ambush, right? And David had known that. In fact, if you go to the story of Absalom, do you remember that where David's fleeing Jerusalem and he's going, it, 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 the text doesn't say that he was like in a narrow pass, it says that he was on the road, but that along the hillside above him, which implies this kind of a thing, right, that there was this, uh, that there was this guy, uh, Shimei, who was a Benjamite, nobody likes a Benjamite, um, you, you can call exterminators if you get a case of the Benjamites at your house. But um, yeah, I, he, this, this ben, from the house of Saul, he was running along the hillside and throwing rocks down on David and cursing him. And, uh, and of course, his, his, uh, his uh, soldiers are like, can we just go kill that dog? And uh, David's like, no, no, that's, that's the, Lord, the Lord has sent him to, to curse me. He thought he was under the discipline of God. So he's like, no, don't, don't touch him. Leave that, leave that alone. But I wonder if that's kind of in, the, in view here, the tight place of, of, of being under attack. Here's something interesting to note as well. The same Hebrew word that's used here to describe distress of that narrow place is the same Hebrew word stem that's used in Psalm 139.5. Let's read it. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So how does God deliver David when he's in the narrow place surrounded by his enemies? Two things. He opens up a path before him. But he also surrounds David with himself. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a wonderful thought? Have you ever been in a tight place and cried out to God? And God delivered you from that. Think about that next time you're facing enemies and, and, and you're thinking, how do I escape this? How do I escape this? Think back to where God has, has answered your prayers and, and given you a wide opening. Maybe it's against temptation. I know I, this is ever before us. If the enemies aren't real, like flesh and blood, sometimes they're just the, the, the weapons of the enemy used against us. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. So cry out to God. On what principle should you cry out to God when you're surrounded by temptation and you say, there's no way out for me? It's the God who makes a way. It's the God who gives you a, an opening to escape. It's the God who surrounds you with himself. Then you need to know that the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. He says, be gracious to me and hear my prayers. Now, you knew the God of the Old Testament's never gracious, right? And in the New Testament, he is. But back then, he was never great. 
Have you been told that or thought that before? I think a lot of Christians get, get hung up in that idea. Actually, the word grace right there in the Hebrew. It's, um, it's always from a, a greater down to the lesser, a superior to an inferior. There's always top downward grace. So somebody's down here, you're up here, God's up here. He, an old friend of mine used to pray, um, you sit high, but you stoop low of God. That's what's being described here. God in grace and mercy and favor stoops down to help the one that is in need. And David's the one in need. When Christ comes, he brings the covenant of grace. And so there is a, a shift of emphasis, you might say, in the New Testament. John can say this. He says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's undeniably true that there is a, a difference of flavor, if you will, between the two covenants, but God has not changed. God is still as holy now as he was before. God still has wrath against sin now as he did before. Under the Old Testament, there was an emphasis on the law that, we might, that, the, that God's people would understand their sin and so on and so forth, and grace is, is more prominent in the new, but God God is still a gracious God and always was. He revealed himself that way. Look at Exodus. This is uh, God revealing himself to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So that's the God that David knows. Now, should we sin so that grace may abound, Paul asked. And you know the answer to that, right? No, heaven forbid, we, that, that, that is not what grace is for. But the beautiful thing that we know here from, from Old and New Testament is that our God is a gracious God. And the only way you stand up against your enemies is not by defending yourself because you've always been perfect and you've done everything right. Your defense is that God, the God you serve, the God you know, is gracious. So come to know him that way. Another thing you need to understand is the Lord has set us apart for himself. It says, oh, we're finally to verse 2. Yay. It'll move fast. Oh, men, how long shall my, uh, shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? And now David lets us in on who the problem is. Who these, we've been talking about these enemies. Now, we, now they're mentioned as men. And ladies, you're all going, well, that's obvious, right? Uh, who else would it be? It's men. Um, the, in the text, it's actually sons of men. Sons of men. And, and when that term is used, it's talking about leaders. It's not just talking about just your average run-of-the-mill people. This, this would be people. Uh, the CSV, Christian Standard Version, uses the phrase exalted ones to translate this. So these are powerful men. These are men that would have been, you know, part of the deep state, of, you know, that David, uh, that David had around him and dealt with them. These would have been friends and supporters up until the time that Absalom came along and alienated their affections. And they've been slandering David. They've been slandering him. They've been speaking lies. They've piled up vain, vain lies and words. And David is faced now with like, you could call it an open conspiracy against him. And yet, what does he do? He doesn't, he, doesn't get, he doesn't go at it from the standpoint of, hey, I didn't do anything wrong. I am guiltless. I am innocent. There's nothing wrong with me. It's all those people. What does he say? 
He says, the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Do you remember how David had been set apart by the Lord? Samuel the prophet came to Jesse, David's father's home, and says, hey, I'm supposed to anoint one of your, I don't, you know, I don't remember the exact setup there, but he, he goes through all of the sons of Jesse, and he gets through all of them, and he doesn't anoint any of them as king, and finally he's like, don't you have another kid somewhere? Come on, <laughs> fess up, you got another one. And he's like, well, we got the one, you know, the little snotty-nosed kid out there in the, in the pasture, you know, with the sheep, but you don't want to talk to him, and they, they call David, and, and David has been set apart, and, and he's anointed king. And the word set apart here is, is used in the Old Testament in the plagues. Now, you've memorized the ten plagues, right? Can you just rattle those off for me real quick? No. I've never memorized them either. The fifth plague, though, you'll be interested to know. The fifth plague was the plague against the livestock. Does anybody remember anything significant about the livestock plague? So this is the interesting thing. The Egyptians had livestock and the Jews had livestock. And God said, I'm going to make a distinction. So this plague, when it hits, it's just going to kill all the Egyptian cattle. But it's going to leave the Israelite uh, cattle alone. I'm going to make a distinction. I'm set, and he uses this, this same word, that, that, that it, they're going to be set apart. God was treating David like those cattle. He was treating them in a special way. They were his. They belonged to him, so he would protect them. In the New Testament, the word sanctified, which is used of us, is a word that means to, and you probably already know this, means to, not only does it mean to be holy, it means to be set apart. We are set apart. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the son of David, is the ultimate set apart anointed one. And we are in him. Because we are in Christ, that comes to us. As he was set apart by the Father, loved by the Father, treated as different by the Father, in Christ we are set apart wholly unto him. That's God's doing. And that's how God regards you. Not because you're the best person living in Great Bend, Kansas. I mean, I'm sure we probably have the top ten of Great Bend, Kansas. I don't want to point fingers, but it's not because of how great you are. It's because you belong to him and he has set you apart. Okay, I'm going to skip over verse 4 or 6, come back real quick in a moment. But uh, the, the Lord puts more joy in our hearts than happiness can bring. Uh, David's enemies are, are pragmatic, it would appear. Uh, they are Uh, They want blessing. We'll come back to that when we look at four through six real fast. But he contrasts his joy to their happiness. He says, you have put, this is verse seven, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. You all know what happiness is, yes? If I say happiness, you understand the definition of the word happiness? When the chiefs win today... You'll be happy. If the, winds lo- if, the, if the Chiefs lose, you won't be happy. And, 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 and then if they win at the Super Bowl, you'll be unhappy because it'll be a year before you get to watch them play again. Something along those lines. So, happiness is, is based off of the root idea of hap. Hap. You're like, I don't use the word hap, Jay. You do. Have you ever said happenstance? It's just happenstance. 
Hap at its root, it's a very simple little English root, and it has to do with the idea of something that just happens. Yes, it just happens. And when things just happen a certain way, when they, when they occur in a way that you like, you're happy. You're happy. It's circumstantial. It's not the exact polar opposite of joy per se, but it's a, it's a different thing. And, and David's like, I don't, you know, even if they have everything they want, and clearly if you, if you dig down in here, we will a little bit, um, they wanted a lot. They wanted a lot of blessing. They wanted a lot of things from God. And they're happy right now because they got rid of David and they got their newly minted king, uh, Absalom. What a gorgeous specimen. And he's, he's so smart and charismatic. And so they're happy. But David says, even, you know what, give them everything they want. Give them, give them you know, full vats and, and grain, granaries and all those things. I have more joy in the Lord. The Lord has given me more joy than they have when all of their happiness is kicking in and they've got everything that they could possibly want or desire. Happiness and joy are not contrary, but they're not the same. This is God's doing. This is God's doing. The Lord did this. The Lord put it into David's heart. Think about where David's at. How happy should David have been at the moment? If, if, if indeed this is surrounding the, the instance of, of Absalom, what has David got at that moment? Not much. He's got a few loyal friends, but his palace has been taken over. He's been run out of town with his tail between his legs. He's got some crazy Benjamin up there throwing rocks down at him and, and, and cursing him. He's on the run. He's, his, his son, it, yeah, we won't go into some of what his son was doing back in Jerusalem, but it wasn't good, and it involved his concubines and so on and so forth, but... But what does David have at that moment? He has the joy of the Lord. He has what only the Lord can give. In his heart, he has that contentment. He has joy. And going along with the joy, verse 8, there's a couple other pieces to the joy. He says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me to dwell in safety. How would you describe David's soul here? What's the condition of his soul under all of this oppression, all of just surrounded and hated on? What's the condition of his soul? Isn't this where you want your soul to be? To have the joy of the Lord, to have peace, to have rest, to be able to have your head hit the pillow and you just fall asleep and you stay asleep and you get a good how many would like a good night's sleep now and again, huh? You ever, you ever feel like, you ever have those troubles of, of being sleepless? If we truly know the Lord, if we have truly come into that relationship where we genuinely understand who He is and what He means to our lives, we will have rest and we will have peace. Listen to what, you know, what, what, what does Jesus say? He says, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden and weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. See, what is he inviting us to do? To know him. It's like, if you know me, if you truly know me, then this stuff flows out of that. That rest, you will find rest for your soul. We may feel uh, that men have turned upon us, and, and when we do, we may find that we have sleepless nights. We may wake up at three in the morning, old people, you know what I'm talking about? Young people don't. 
They're like, no, I slept till 11 a.m. Um, it's a different thing. You get a little bit older, you start waking up at weird times. And sometimes you may wake up and you may think about adversity and you may think about people that have something against you. And you may rehearse conversations in your mind and hear what they said and think about maybe ill-chosen words that you spoke back in, in return. But if the Lord is our stronghold, if the Lord is, is, if we know him in that way, then we will have joy and we will have peace and we will have rest. But it has to come. It won't be because you, you'll think, ah, at three in the morning, you're not going to think, yeah, I really showed them. I told them what for. That's not going to put you back to sleep. It's only knowing who, who you have uh, and what you have in Christ. Okay, if you're not a believer or perhaps, um, perhaps you are a believer, but maybe you've been there next to Absalom instead of David, like you've fallen into that crowd, uh, look at verses 4 through 6. Because, and, and if you're reading this, it can be hard to, to say at times whose voice and who's being spoken to, but I think, it's, I think this is actually pretty clear once you look at it. Verses 4 through 6 are spoken to these men, to these exalted ones. David says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent, Salah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. I probably read that in a way that you're not accustomed to hearing, but David is speaking to these men, and he's not treating them as just these irreconcilable enemies of his. He's treating them more as in dialogue, in spiritual dialogue with them. He's saying, hey guys, I'm going to sleep fine tonight. My head's going to hit the pillow. I won't think another thing till morning. You know why? Because, because the Lord has put joy in my heart, and he's given me peace, and he's given me rest. You, on the other hand, <laughs> you should wake up and you should lie on your bed with your eyes wide open and you should be thinking about what it is you, you're, you, you've actually been doing and, and get right with God. He says, offer right sacrifices. Bring a good heart, a right heart to God. Seek God. Seek that reconciliation that you need. Put things right with him. And that's, then, then, then you're going to know that kind, of, that kind of peace that you need. Such exalted ones need to understand who God is. They need to get right with them. So my question today to you is, um, do you find yourself in the psalm here anywhere? It, it, you know, if you're being completely honest, if I'm being completely honest, I might see myself in a little bit of both groups. Like we could be David if, if we really are, are walking with Christ and we know the Lord and leaning upon him. Maybe, maybe it just, we just relate completely and 100% to David. But there have probably been times in our life when we've been along with those men, those exalted ones, and we've set ourselves somehow against that which is good or that which is right. Well, my time is pretty, pretty well up. Let me just really re- quickly rehearse. First of all, for, for the believer, if you're in Christ, look at what you've got. I'm just going to kind of rattle these off again. You've written them down as we've gone along. What do you have in the Lord? You have his righteousness. You have his righteousness. You know that he hears you. 
You know that he sees you when you are in dire straits, when, when you're surrounded by an enemy and that he is willing and has given you a way of escape. He is gracious. His whole nature is gracious and merciful. He has set you apart for himself in Christ. Your sins are forgiven. So, so you walk in that, Christian. You pursue that. How, what does what going forward look like in the Christian life? Knowing him better. Knowing him better. Because everything, all of that, all of that joy and that peace and that rest flow out. Come, learn of me, he says. It flows out of that. And that is yours already now in Christ. If you don't have Christ, then I would say to you, don't get angry. Or if you're going to be angry... Don't sin in your angry anger. Instead, ponder on your bed. Offer right sacrifice. What is God looking for? A contrite heart, a repentant heart. Bring that to him. Confess your sins. It's okay that you've been on the wrong side if you recognize that and you come to the Lord and you confess it and you receive to yourself David, but not David. The one David is a, is a type of... Receive Christ, the anointed one. Take him, and he will forgive you. And he will come to live in your life, and, and you will come to know him, and, you, and life, and going forward will be the same thing. It will be coming to know him better. Let's pray.